Tonight, I want to title this lesson, Go Back. Um, you're going to see this phrase pop up repeatedly uh, through different English words, but essentially in the Hebrew, we're going to see go back repeatedly in chapter one of Ruth. That's why I landed there. I was tempted to go with the Beatles classic, Get Back. But um, now that I've said it, it's in your head. You're welcome. Um, Ruth chapter one is a, well, let's scratch that. Every chapter in Ruth is a spectacular little glimpse of an amazing story of peace. I'm going to say this every week because this is a bedrock of what I'm trying to do in this lesson. I think that this is in some ways a protest piece of literature. This is a little, a little story told in the middle of a world gone mad. Uh, and if we ever needed stories told in the war middle of a world gone mad, it's probably now. A little story told in the middle of a world that had a hyper-religious sensitivity um, in pulling out from Torah the injunction that no Moabite is to be in the house of the Lord and this become a hallmark of the return from Isra Israeli dispersion in Babylon back into Israel in about the 5th century, 6th century BC, that became the hallmark of the ministry. Um, I personally think we are better served when the hallmark of ministry is good news rather than the hallmark of ministry is who is excluded, who is wrong, who is in sin, and where everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Um, it is low-hanging fruit to minister from the perspective of what's wrong because you don't really need to hear from God, you just need to hear from your emotions. So anything you're mad at, it's wrong. Anything that ticked you off, it's wrong. Anything you don't understand, it's wrong. Anything you're confused about, it's wrong. You don't need to be anointed. You don't need to have a prayer life. You don't need to even need to know the Bible. You can just watch some stuff, get angry, read a couple of articles, talk to some people at, on the street, boom, get up and plow away at stuff. It is uh, much more difficult oftentimes in the midst of a dark space to shine a light. It's much more difficult to give hope to people that don't have hope. It's much more difficult to be optimistic in the middle of pessimism where it is so easy to be pessimistic to be hopeful. In effect, what I'm saying is, it's harder to speak of the invisible when you have so much of the visible. When there's so much going wrong in the natural realm, it's hard to speak of the things that you can't see. This is why we need faith now as much or more than we've ever needed faith. Because in times where things aren't going the way you'd hope in the realm of your sight, sound, touch, you need that which you can't see, which you can't hear, and you can't taste and touch, but you believe in. And it gives you a reason to go on. And if that's pie in the sky, well, then the gospel is pie in the sky. If that's too optimistic, then the good news is too optimistic because at its core, the good news is he has come to heal the brokenhearted, to bind up the wounds, to lift those who are oppressed. He has come to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, jubilee for all. He has come to deliver the kingdom unto his father. All of those things are good things. All of that is good news. So when I read Ruth, I read her now with hopefulness and excitement and optimism, but I read it and it makes it to me the diamond is sharper against the dark backdrop. It makes it more impressive to see Ruth against the backdrop of a world that doesn't want Moabites in its, in its life, that doesn't accept these mixed marriages between 
the, the children of Israel and these Moabitess women, this that characterizes the ministries of Ezra and Nehemiah, at least somewhat characterizes them. All of that is in play in Ruth. What we circle back to every week will be that Ruth is a Moabitess. The, the text will do it for us often, but I'll come back to it over and over because the author of the book of Ruth, whoever he may be, and I don't think it's Samuel. Let me just go ahead and say that. I don't think we've really dealt with authorship. Um, some commentaries put this to be Samuel's writing. They only do that because it opens within the time of the judges. And Samuel was the best of his era. And, but, I, but the internal evidence does not put this as having been written in the time of the judges, but it puts it much, much past Samuel. And by the way, it also gives David's genealogy which Samuel isn't around for the fullness of David's, ministry, David's kingship. So even that doesn't work unless someone else jumps in and writes the end of the book of Ruth. So it makes much more sense that it's someone else whom, whom we don't know. And maybe they were anonymous because it was a dangerous letter to write because it's not always popular to say the right thing even in the church. You know how we always say stuff like, it's not always popular to do the right thing in this world. Well, that's easy. Of course, it's not always popular to do the right thing in the world. What would you expect? They're the world. You know what's even harder? Sometimes this is do the right thing or the good thing when it's disagreeable among your own family, among your own people, among the church, when it, does, when it stands as slightly countercultural to whatever wave or whatever wind is blowing. And I think that's Ruth. Let's read a couple of verses today to start with on a message that a lesson that I think will be um, will give us a bunch of stuff to think about. That's what I try to do every week. Ruth 1, 6, 7. She arose. This is Naomi. She arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. Her daughters-in-law are Orpah and Ruth. Remember, she has lost her sons, Malon and Chilion. They've died while in the land of Moab. They've been there for a decade because there was no bread in Bethlehem. She had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. We commented on this a little bit before we got started tonight, that this is a little confusing wording-wise. You could maybe drop the second country of Moab to make it a little more readable. They are coming back from the country of Moab. She had heard that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Good question to think about here, and I don't... I don't this is good, probably good preaching material. I don't want to stay here too long, but how does Naomi hear while in Moab that there is bread in Bethlehem? And so there's either people who have come through Bethlehem into Moab to tell her, probably shouldn't read too much into it. It's a narrative device to get Naomi out of Moab back into Bethlehem. But what is important is that while she's in Moab, she hears about good things going on in Bethlehem. When good things go on in Bethlehem, you hear about it in Moab. If you want to make a difference in Moab, bake bread in the house of bread. So if you want to pull people in to goodness, you got to give them something good to eat. Don't feed fears. Don't feed anger. Give us something that fills our soul. Fear and anger is the fast food of your spirit. But something that anchors your soul, puts you know, a little stick to your ribs a little bit, is the bread that comes from the house of bread. Therefore... And because of that, she goes out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So Orpah and Ruth are accompanying Naomi back to Judah. Let's talk about Orpah and Ruth because we did not talk about them from the standpoint of their names last week. Orpah, her name literally means nape, a word we don't really use anymore, so I rounded it out for you a little bit. The nape of the neck. Um, and it is literally what 
nape is, is the backside of the neck. To have seen the back of the neck in ancient literature is to accuse someone of turning tail and running. So it was a flight statement. If you saw someone, the nape of the neck, they had turned and went the other way. In extreme versions of this story, you get Lot's wife who turns back and turns to a pillar of salt, which was a euphemism in the old literature world for people who refuse to let go of the past turn into statues because statues don't move. Okay, so if you refuse to let go of the past, you turn into a pillar of salt, you turn into a statue. That's why Jesus uses that in the Gospels when he says, you put your hands in the plow, go forward. If you're going to do this for the kingdom, you got to move forward. You can't live in the past lest you be like Lot's wife. In other words, not that God's going to turn you into salt. Don't worry. God's not against people. Got a big salt shaker in heaven. Can't wait to turn people into stone. But rather, he's using the, the idea of their day is to say, if you can't go forward, you certainly can't go backward. The best thing you're going to do is just stand in one spot. And you're not going to get much done. So Nape is Orpah. But I want to be sure that you understand this is not a condemnatory name. It's a name dictated by plot function because she turns her back on Naomi. The reason I say by plot function is this is a story that is no doubt historical fiction. We, We started talking about this last week. I just didn't use that phrase. What I mean by that is David comes out of this story. I mean, David's the real guy. So what is happening is we are developing a plot around David's genealogy. Because David has a connection to Moab. I made that connection with you in Samuel last week. That becomes in part of David's lore, that his family had an experience in Moab. Somebody, several hundred years later, to tell a story about how, hey, you shouldn't be so mad at these Moabites. Let me remind you of King David's family, starts to tell a story called Ruth. And so the names, like sickness and destruction, Malon and Chilion, are names meant to foreshadow events. So when you name the girl Orpah, Nape, everyone in that world knew Nape of the neck means you've turned around. So before she ever turns around, astute readers knew she was going to turn around. When you called her Orpah, it was kind of like naming her Judas to us. If you were telling a story and you said, this guy's name is Judas, everyone would think, hmm, this guy, watch out for this guy because he might betray someone. Okay, that's Orpah in the sense that she turns around. That's what I mean by it's a, it's a name dictated by her plot function. No condemnation in this. We're just being introduced to her decision first. She decides first, not Ruth. Orpah does. We're being introduced to Orpah's decision first because her decision is the most logical decision. Why in the world would a Moabite feel welcome in Judah? Logic says you go back to your home. And that's exactly what Orpah will do. Because we need to see that Ruth makes a decision that's unusual. That's why Orpah exists in the story. If Ruth is the only character, then we're to assume that every Moabite would show up to Judah, but they don't. They don't all want to be there, but Ruth does want to be there. And it's not the easy decision to make. It's the difficult decision to make. And it's made more difficult by the fact that her sister, sister sister-in-law, goes back to Moab. She would have someone to go back with. And now she's going to move on to Judah with no one except her mother-in-law as an accompaniment. This makes Ruth's position more precarious by introducing Orpah to the story. Fun fact, 
I once heard that Oprah was supposed to be named Orpah and they misspelled it on her birth certificate. I don't know if that's true, but I heard it a long time ago and there it is. Ruth, her name means friendship. Does it? Well, it does for purposes of the Hebrews telling the story because actually Ruth is not a Hebrew name. Ruth is a Moabite. Did you realize that you have a book in your Old Testament named after a Gentile? Ruth. You got some of those in the New Testament as well. But Ruth, named after a Gentile, this Gentile woman, her name comes to mean friendship because Naomi and Ruth constitute one of the greatest examples of friendship in the entire Bible. It's rarely thought of that way. In fact, if you ask most people, give me a good friendship in the Bible, they almost always pick David and Jonathan. Why don't they pick Naomi and Ruth? It's much deeper. Well, we kind of like men and we like military heroes and we like kings and we like power. It's not as cool to pick a widow from Moab who's friends with a woman who'd rather you call her bitter. That's Naomi. And so it's not, it's a sloppy story up front. It's got some problems and some issues, but man, what a story of friendship. Ruth really is the Proverbs 18, 24 friend that sticks closer than a brother, a friend that sticks even closer than a fa the family members that she has had have been. They are dead and gone, but Ruth is going to make a decision. Now, let's read on. Um, what will happen through the course of this is we will read the whole book because it's not that long. And even though I'm not going Hebrew word, Hebrew word, Hebrew word, and breaking every verse down, I still think it's valuable for you to read them. And, and not everybody's going to sit down and read it on their own. So we will work our way through it. So let's do some of that as we go 8 to 15 in Ruth chapter 1. Whatever we skip, don't worry. We'll tell the story as we go or tell the story 10 times as we work our way through this study. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. Uh, better in Hebrew, go back. Here's your first one, really. So when you see go, go return, go back. Go back to where you came from. This is why we've titled that this. You're going to see this pop up a lot. Go back to your mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they wept. Verse 10. And they said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, go back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? We'll talk about why she says this in a moment. It's an odd statement. 12, go back, my daughters. Go, because I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? This is a question of basically, would you wait for them to be old enough for you to marry? This is going to take forever. I'd have to get married now, get pregnant now, nine months of baby's born. What are you going to do? Wait 15 years, 18 years? It's not, it's not feasible. Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Ooh always cringe a little bit when I read Naomi say this. I realize I'm reading in an old world and I'm seeing it through the lens of Jesus and Jesus teaches me what the father looks like and the father doesn't put his hand against me. Life happens, but for purposes of telling this story, that's what we have Naomi saying. I wish she didn't say it, but she does. Not everybody tells stories the same way. I'm okay with that, but I just want to let you know 
Please don't quote Naomi the next time something bad happens and to go tell your friends the hand of the Lord has gone out against me like Naomi in the book of Ruth because the hand of the Lord is not against you. He is for you. He is not against you. Uh, he is what Christ looks like. So if Christ's hand went out against people, then God's hand is going out against you. And we haven't yet found that. So I'll let her say it because she says it. I disagree with her. All right. 14. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. There it is again. And so go back, go back, go back, gone back. Go to the thing you know. Turn around now. The question is, why is Naomi so insistent on sending her back? Why send these girls away? These girls are the only thing Naomi has. And they're the only thing that reminds Naomi of her sons. Wouldn't you want them close by? And this is one of the first hints in this book that going back isn't always safe or going to Judah isn't safe. And Naomi knows it. That if you follow me into Judah, you're a stranger. Sometimes you need to see what's between the lines. What is Naomi saying to Orpah and Ruth that's not said? Here's what she says. Go back home to your mom's house. Don't come with me. I don't have a kid for you to marry. You can't wait around long enough to have one if I could have another kid. That's all we get. Here's what I think she says that's not in the text. And I know I say, this is what I think she says. I think she says, coming back isn't safe. You don't belong. People won't like you. You're from the wrong country. You're from the wrong side of the river, the wrong side of the sea. The wrong side of the tracks. My people won't even let you come to worship for generations. Stay away. You've already been hurt once. I don't want to see you get hurt again. It's best if you just go find your own church. It's best if you just go find your own people. Go to your mom's house. Go back home to the people who know you. That's go to your mom's house. Go, because mom accepts her kids. This is one of the rare moments of mom's house in the Bible, by the way. We're, it's almost always father's house. Go to mom's house. Mom will take you. It's Naomi saying, if no one will take you, your mom will take you. Because where I'm going with you is good chance they're not going to take you. This isn't heavily emphasized, I think, because this is a covert story. <laughs> I think because the story that's being presented is supposed to sneak into the ethos of its audience, not punch them in the nose. It's supposed to be one that they get attracted to the romance of it, the beauty of it, the gentleness of it. Only then do they realize what they've read. So go back. Go back and do what? Here, here's a couple of them. I don't want to stay forever on them, but I do think they're worth talking about. In verses 8 and 9, the go back lies around, go back and find rest. And the writer of Ruth uses the Hebrew word Manoah, which is literally the word translated rest. Our first instance of Manoah being derived into a pronoun is the biblical character Noah, 
who builds a boat and floats it above the water. So I thought Manoah gave it away, but you know, I was afraid maybe we'd land on Ma. Um, <laughs> so Manoah, Noah is rest and the land of rest. And Naomi doesn't see Ruth finding rest in Judah go back. Why doesn't she say, come with me to the land of rest? Because that's what we kind of think of Judah and Israel. Come with me to the land of rest. No, go to your land and find Manoah. Go to your land to find rest. There's not going to be any rest for you where we're coming from here. And, and this, this definitely holds the implications, I think, of the things we're talking about, about the, 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 the sort of the covert story. But it has other things it can say. Because I hope you realize stories can say more than one thing at the same time. Okay, it can tell you one thing, but it's also telling you another thing. What we might call primary, secondary, tertiary. It has a lot of stuff to talk about. And so maybe more than that is the fact that you should trust for rest for people outside of your circle. Maybe our prayer should not be always that they join us to find it, but that they find it. You know, we don't have to always pray that they become us. We can pray that they find what they're looking for without us. Naomi prays rest for Ruth, but doesn't invite her to Judah. That seems counteractive. If you want rest, come to the place where Naomi knows something Ruth doesn't, but doesn't stop there. She doesn't say, just go back. I don't care what happens to you. Maybe this is a shot across the bow in this letter to say, look, even if you don't like the Moabites, and you don't want them here, you should send them home with rest. Remember how Ezra ends with 100, and 100 plus, what, 117 people splitting families and sending wives and kids home? Maybe this is a shot for, if you're going to send them back, shouldn't you send them back blessed? Shouldn't you send them back with rest? Not with their hearts shattered, not with their worlds torn apart, but pray rest on the people that aren't like you, that don't worship with you, that don't fellowship with you. Pray that they find what they're looking for. And it's pretentious of me to look at you and say, I'm praying for you that you'll find what I found. But that's so easy for us to do because we believe I'm walking in truth. I'm going to pray that you find what I find. Maybe that's not what I ought to pray. Maybe I ought to pray you find what you need. You find what you need, that God meets you in the middle of your chaos, your questioning and your search, and reveals himself to you independent of me and my ministry, independent of the way I view the Bible, independent of the things I think are true. May you find what you're looking for. And I think sometimes we're scared to say that because, we, oh, well, I know where they're searching and I wouldn't want to pray blessings on what they're searching. Why wouldn't you want to pray blessing? Well, I don't want them to find it another way. Why? If they found it, they found it. Like if they actually found rest, wouldn't that be what we're going for? Naomi doesn't categorize rest as having to be in the land of promise. I just pray you find Manoah. I pray rest is yours. Go into rest. And may we start to pray that for people in our lives and believe it and really mean it. I hope you find what you're looking for. I hope you find the peace you desire. I'll pray you find it. And I'm not saying I'll pray you find what I've found because what do I know? 
but I pray you find what you're looking for because we have a big God and he knows how to find you in the midst of your searching, whatever that is. And if you need changed, well, I leave that up to him and you. I don't do that. I don't qualify to be the agent of change in your life anyway. And so go find rest. Here's a couple more from 11 and 12. In that instance is of go back. It was go back and find a husband. Go back and fill out your life. Go back so you can have children. Go back to be fruitful. Go back in a world of patriarchy. That's the world this is written into. Like it or not, that's what it is. Go back and find someone that can provide for you, that can take care of you, that can provide children for you. I can't do that, she says. Not only can I not do it myself, I'm too old to have kids. If I could have kids, this is a process, and I'd have to get married and have children, and then you'd have to wait on them. And she says, none of us have got that kind of time. In other words, listen, you girls are going to be too old to have kids with my kids if you're waiting on my kids. So the timing on this is all wrong. Go back. <laughs> Go back home so you can find husbands. Naomi can't have more sons. She don't want them to wait to mature. That leads to two, two things I want to talk about. One of it's lever at marriage, and the other is to make a mention of Genesis 38. So without getting too deep into the weeds, lever at marriage is a concept introduced in the book of Genesis in which if a man dies... He's married and he dies, but he doesn't have a son. His brother will have a child with his widow so that the child takes on the father's inheritance. Okay. This was extremely important in a culture in which property, possessions, and things were passed through the bloodline, namely through the bloodline of men. And so... It was also important because it guaranteed having a son guaranteed the passage of an inheritance. And so if a man died and his widow didn't have children, there was no guarantee she got anything. So leveret marriage was to protect the woman. It, wasn't, it had nothing to do with the dead guy. We, we kind of pitched this as the dead guy never had a kid, so somebody had to raise up his name. No. Somebody had to take care of the woman. And who does that but the son? You want to get a little slice of this? In the Gospels, Jesus goes into a little village called Nain. And there's a funeral procession. And there's a woman at the front of the funeral procession crying her eyes out. And the text says her only son had died. And in that culture, the death of her only son meant the death of her entire income. And Jesus reaches out and touches the casket as it goes past. And the boy sets up and starts to speak. Jesus turns and walks away. He levered marriage through the miraculous. He brought to life a new generation. Levered marriage is just an involved way of taking care of the female, the woman, the widow, so that she's not abandoned and so that she is taken care of. And there a lot of, not all, but a lot of the sexual laws found in Torah rotate around the taking care of those who are being used and exploited so that they are not used and exploited all the way down to, you're gonna marry her now. Why? Because she must be taken care of. 
And so Torah built fences around family and guarded it carefully as a sojourning people in the middle of a land that was not theirs. Okay, they're being picked off by enemies right and left. Leverett marriage is that. Leverett marriage starts to take on branches. Um, it starts to pick up different stories, sidelines. One of them is the Genesis 38 story of Tamar. Tamar is a woman who marries a man and he dies and he, she never has kids with him. And so her, his brother marries her and he doesn't have kids with her. And then his brother marries her and he doesn't have kids with her. We go three deep into the story and you get to the end of it. And Tamar still is sort of out here by herself. And then she appeals to the family and the family is too busy. And so Tamar dresses up like a prostitute one night and catches her father-in-law in town and he comes in and sleeps with her and leaves his signet and staff as in lieu of payment. Because not only did he visit a prostitute, he didn't bring his wallet. He didn't have any money. And he goes, well, leave this. I'll send you something tomorrow. Send you something next week. And when he sends it, there's no prostitute in that town. They go, we don't have a prostitute in this town. What are you talking about? And then when she turns up pregnant, she comes to her father-in-law and says, I'm going to have a child. And her father-in-law says, well, I'm going to kill whoever did this to you. Because this you're supposed to be in our family. Who is it? And she goes, whoever owns this. Dun, dun, dun. You know, there's the, the big reveal. And you know the story. And why is that story relevant? Well, it's Leverett marriage relevant. Because... They didn't do what they were supposed to do, and there's hell to pay as part of any story. But Tamar has a baby that has a baby that has a baby that has a baby that has a baby named Boaz, who marries a woman named Ruth, who has a baby that has a baby, who has a baby named David. And Ruth and Tamar both are in the lineage of what will be Jesus. So by invoking the story of Leverett marriage into Ruth, the writer is covertly reaching back to the most famous Leverett story in their text, Genesis 38, and reminding them that it's happened before. Oh, and by the way, guess who David's great, 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 great grandma is? Product of a Leverett marriage. So the Leverett marriage that's inserted into Ruth is an homage, a tip of the cap to another Leverett marriage out of which David came as well. You see what's going on. Important, big time. Because the Leverett marriage is going to introduce you to the concept of the kinsman redeemer. Boaz is going to come in as kinsman redeemer, someone who, who has the rights to take care of Ruth, but there's going to be someone else in front. We'll get into all the beautiful stuff that's coming up. All going to be good shades of Jesus and redemption. But it's all leading you up to that story. And all these little tidbits along the way are setting that stage. They're, they're, they're getting us set up for that moment. Okay, then into 15 we go. And she said, look, this is Naomi talking. Your sister-in-law, Orpah, nape of the neck, has gone back. Nate, turn the neck. Gone back to her people. Gone back to her gods. Go back after your sister-in-law. There's your final go back. Go back. After, no, I didn't say that right. It's not your final go back. It's your final go back in this context. There's another one coming up, which is a sweet little narrative trick. 
that's, that the writer's laying out. But for this purpose, Naomi says, go back, follow her. I'm not going to be able to give you anything. You need to return after your sister-in-law. Let's read on through 22. Ruth said, and this, this is going to need its own week. This is, this is poetic beauty. This might be the prettiest piece of poetry in the Bible spoken by a female. Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts you and me. Well, that's as good as it gets. That's Ruth's salvation prayer. That's, that's your coming to Jesus meeting. That's asking, that's asking Jesus into your heart. I know none of those things are actually happening. But that's Ruth saying, I'm not just going back. I'm not a tag along. I'm not going back just to see if this works and then I'm leaving. I'm going back for good. And the Lord would fight against me if anything but death parts us. I'm in this for the long haul. Now this is going back with purpose. She's been told to go back, go back, go back, go back to where you came from. And now she says, forget it. I'm not going back to where I was. I'm going somewhere else. I'm journeying onward. 18. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. <laughs> it kind of sounds like she's a little bit snippy, like, you know, fine, we're going to walk this thing in silence. I don't really think it means that, but I kind of like to think maybe. She's <laughs> like, all right, we're not going to talk anymore. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, and it happened that when they came to Bethlehem, all the city was excited because of them. And here's where the story which has had all of this tension. If you're reading it for the first time, uh-oh, what's going to happen? And this is where you expect Ruth to do one thing and it does another thing. You expect one pitch and you get another one here. This is the moment where Ruth is obviously a different piece of literature. Because in a world where we're kicking Moabites out of the country and sending them home, here comes this story. And you would expect that right here, they're going to tear her apart. They're going to hate her. But I love the author of Ruth because they do what you don't expect. They write, they write a piece of fiction where people are better than they are in real life. You know, like people do what you wish they would do. They say what you wish they would say. They love the way you wish they would love. They forgive the way you wish they would forgive. And that's what's beautiful about literature is you can do that if you do it right. Did I tell you this last week or the week before that Ruth stands alone in ancient literature as a story about good people that works? If I didn't tell you that, I should have. In ancient literature, we don't have every story has a bad guy because we figured out that you can't tell a good story without a bad guy. And then comes Ruth. And it stands alone as the story without a bad guy. But the bad guy in the story is the potential for bad guys. The bad guy is the shadow of bad guys. It's the round every corner where you go, oh, this is going to be it. They're going to get her. Oh, they don't do it. Oh, they're going to kill her. Oh, they don't kill her. Oh, they're going to tear her apart. Oh, they don't tear Everywhere, even all the way up to where that kinsman redeemer, he's first in line. And the first time you read it, you think, Boaz ain't going to get her. This other guy already. And then, oh, look at that. He's going to sell his rights. And then, he's gonna, then you, you fully expect at every turn something goes wrong and it doesn't. And so they're all excited to see her. Is this Naomi? And she said to them, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Um, preview alert, we're going to talk about 
her name. And the preview is that she thinks she's one thing, but God ignores her. Just calls her what she really is, because God doesn't always acknowledge you by what you wish you were, but what he sees you as. 21, 22. I went out full. The Lord brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem, the beginning of barley harvest. Let me just say this. I, I, I don't know how hard I want to land here. Um, no bad guy, but it, Naomi tries real hard to create one, and his name is God. Through her conversation, she tries to pitch God as the worst character in the story. And I wonder if the writer of Ruth is doing that on purpose so that those part of that send these Moabites home program in the Nehemiah Ezra world will realize that they're creating a bad guy in their story. You're creating a bad guy and you're calling it God. And maybe the worst thing we can do, we can do a lot of stupid things in church, in the pulpit, in ministry. Maybe the worst thing we can do is make God to be the bad guy. Naomi tries. The story bumps against it. You can feel it right here in chapter 1. It's bumping up against trying to create God to be the bad guy. We know he won't be. We know he's not. God resists it. The story turns. It curves. God ends up being good. And we, we knew it would happen. But it's interesting to me that, that the attempt is there. And I just wonder if it's a really subtle way for the writer to say, be careful making God out to be the bad guy in the story. And every time I hear people blame God for things, I wonder, why would you write the, why would you get up and preach this message and you just made the antagonist God? Why'd you do that? When the world gives you all kinds of antagonists, why would you make God the antagonist? Why make God the bad guy? There's a plenty of cast of characters waiting in the wings to come on the stage as a bad guy. Oh no, let's prop up the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the worst of them all. I don't buy it. Um, let me land on one other thing. I like this. To me, this is just cool. All right. Let me jump ahead to Boaz. You don't know what's going on yet. Don't worry. No context. We'll get there. Ruth 2.11. Boaz says to Ruth, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people who you did not know before. What a phrase. This is what Boaz says to Ruth. It's been fully reported to me that you've left your father and your mother, the land of your people, and you've come to a land that you did not know. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, get out from your country, from your family, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. It's not word for word, but it's the spirit of the same thing. That Boaz hears that Ruth is the female Abraham. Ruth has left the land of Gentiles and Canaanites and crossed over into land that she did not know and that she's been faithful in doing so. And he uses the same verbiage that Genesis uses about Abraham. And the writer of Ruth is sending a message to his audience. What if the Moabite we're turning away today is this generation's Abraham? That our father Abraham left Moab, left Canaan, left Ur of the Chaldees, and he went to a land that he did not know. And what if one of these Moabites you're turning back is the new Abraham? 
And they're crossing over the Dead Sea into a land they do not know. And they're leaving their father and their mother to do so. What if we're rejecting the next generation of redemption? I like what Robert Alter says right here. Now it's a woman, a Moabite, who reenacts Abraham's long trek from the east to Canaan. She will become a founding mother of the nation as he was the founding father. Ruth's paradoxical journey outward from home that proves to be a going back to home has been aptly summarized by Herbert Marx. These, quote, brief chapters outlined the two principal archetypes of Western narrative. The Abrahamic myth of definitive rupture, the going out. The Odyssean myth of ultimate return, the journey home. And they're encapsulated in that Abraham and Ruth story. Go, go back to the Ruth 1.22. That last big section I gave you before Ruth 2. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite is her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And that's a different conjugation of the Hebrew phrase, go back. So the writer of Ruth drops it in one more time. Naomi's been saying, go back, go back, go back, go back. I will go back. I just won't go back to where I came from. I'll go back to where you came from. And I'll consider it where I came from. Look at that. Who returned from the country of Moab. Ruth didn't return from the country of Moab. Ruth had always lived in Moab. But the writer is showing that the moment she determined in her heart that she belonged to the people of God, she belonged to the people of God. So irreversibly that coming to Judah was like coming home for Ruth. So much so was Abraham in God's will that by leaving Ur of the Chaldees, everywhere you step your foot, God said, I shall give you that land. That will be home. Ruth, come back. Everywhere you step your foot, I shall give you that land. That's just cool to me. Did you know all of this was happening in this first chapter? All of this crammed in beautiful stuff? Go back, go back. Go back. Well, if Abraham is a father, Ruth is a mother. That's the point of the story. And if you agree that Abraham is a father, you've got to agree that the Abrahamic father started as a Gentile outside of God, and then he came in by faith. And if Ruth is a mother, she started as a Moabite outside of the people of God, and then she came in by faith, and she walked it out. And if out of Abraham came Isaac and Jacob, then out of Ruth came David. And if out of all of that came Jesus, then our prayer ought to be for them to find rest, whoever they are and wherever they are. What a story. What a story. Let's pray, and as always, pray you find you somewhere in this story. (laughs) However... You are to be found. Father, thank you for a word tonight that brought encouragement to my soul in so many ways and the one that stands out so much to me and stood out so much even as we walked through it both in study and in delivery is how I want to be the kind of man who prays that people around me find rest even if it's not where I find rest. Like Naomi says to Ruth, 
go find Manoa, go home and find Manoa. It doesn't even, I, I, that never would have registered with me because I would say, you got to come see what I see if you want to find rest. I want a heart that wants them to rest more than I want to be right. And I pray that, Father, that whatever work that takes, continue in me. And for those who are on this journey and they're somewhere between Moab and Judah, Lord, begin that process of heart transformation that is wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die and are buried, that's where I will die and be buried. And may the Lord do so more unto me if anything but death part me and thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.